This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kate Carpenter, one of the hosts of this channel, and today I'm excited to be talking with Jordan Salama about his new book, Every Day the River Changes, Four Weeks Down the Magdalena. Jordan Salama, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a delight. I've, I really enjoyed reading this book, and um, I'm, I'm eager to know a lot more about it, but could you tell us a little bit about yourself first? Sure. So I'm Jordan. I am 24 and I'm a writer and a journalist. I write a lot for National Geographic, the New York Times. Um, I live in New York. My family is from everywhere, from the Middle East to Latin America. So um, I have always had an interest in writing about people and places in, in different parts of the world. And yeah, this this book began as my senior thesis as an undergrad at Princeton University, and then it has been expanded and adapted since and I can't wait for people to read the final product. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. So tell me a little bit more about how you came to be interested in the subject about Columbia and the Magdalena itself. It started out when I was, um, it was actually after my freshman year in college. I knew that I wanted to go to Latin America and spend a good chunk of time there. Um, I didn't know what country. My family's from Argentina, and I'd been there before, but I hadn't ever really been uh, anywhere out of the United States, or really anywhere, period, by myself. Um, and so I wanted to have some kind of work experience um, in another country, and I knew that I was interested in storytelling. I knew I wanted to, to write and maybe work with video and, and tell stories about people um, in, in Latin America. So through a number of opportunities with Princeton and, um, and the Wildlife Conservation Society, the kind of global uh, wildlife organization, we set up this like informal, I don't know if we should even call it an internship, but it was basically <laughs> this funded grant that got me there to basically shadow the Wildlife Conservation Society's rural field projects throughout Colombia. I went to the Pacific coast where I saw humpback whales. I went to the Northern wetlands where I filmed a short video about a a community river turtle conservation project. I went to the edge of the rural Darien gap on the border of Colombia and Panama, kind of the only break in the Pan American highway, this swath of dangerous jungle. Uh, And I watched a migrant crisis unfolding in front of my eyes. Uh, Haitians, Caribbean Islanders, Africans, South Asians would come to South America and begin this perilous trek north to the US-Mexico border. And it would take them through this kind of unforgiving jungle. Anyway, all this is to say, I basically got a glimpse of what is an extraordinarily diverse country, both in people and ecosystems. Um, And I began taking notes. I just kind of had this journal um, where I would write down what people told me throughout the course of the day. And I never thought that I would really write about it in earnest, 
But what happened was when it came time for me to, to pick a topic for my senior thesis, um, I kind of had decided that I wanted to write about a river and a river that had folk tales around it because I was always fascinated by oral histories and legends. Um, and so the kind of combination of a river, a country that is in an interesting kind of socio-political moment, Colombia being in a transition, hopefully away from conflict, um, made for a very interesting time to go there. And, and the fact that, you know, going back to my old notes from 2016, I realized that uh, I remembered that a lot of people had told me that if you wanted to understand Colombia, you should try to understand its most important river. So that kind of set me off on this journey down the Rio Magdalena, thousand miles to stay with the people who live along its banks. Fantastic. I'm curious to know, so you could really describe this book in a lot of ways. You could call it a travelogue or nature writing. Um, there's history and politics in there. How do you summarize it when you talk about it? It's a really, really good question. Not an easy one to answer. I think the way that we've been describing it to people is travel writing for a new generation. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a strange way to to, to phrase something. Um, but I think that there's a lot of connotations associated with travel writing and kind of its beginnings and and how it's been done in the past, in the sense that a lot of times it 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 others uh, how do it, it, there's othering involved. It, mm-hmm. it exoticizes people um, when really it should be an, a, a, an exercise in sharing cultures, an exercise in empathy and understanding. Um, I think there's tremendous value in, in people writing about places that uh, that are not their own places where they're a visitor, so long as it's done in a kind of sensitive and inclusive and informative way, so that we can learn more about the world around us and. Um, and, and understand kind of what's going on in complex situations. So this is very much the story of one young person's journey down an important river. It doesn't necessarily try to be anything more, but um, through that journey, which was a real adventure, and I met so many wonderful people, and <laughs> excellent characters along the way, from filigree <laughs> jewelers to traveling donkey libraries and archaeologists and biologists, um, I think it provides a nice uh, cross-section of a country in transition. So um, it's both travel, adventure, nature writing, but it's also, I think, nonfiction journalism where you are centering lots of local voices and hearing what people have to say. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to come back to some of those characters because that uh, is such a great aspect of this book. But I want to dig in first a little bit just to the structure because you've set this book up as what, what you might call sort of a series of vignettes or um, essays that are in three parts that move down the river along your journey. Um, could you, <laughs> this might be a lot to ask, but could you walk me through some of the highlights of those parts? The highlights of, of the journey itself? Mm-hmm, sure. Sure. So the, the book is structured. I mean, the river kind of provides a nice linear structure for this book. I start near the source and I finish where it meets the sea. And so it's structured into three sections, the upper Magdalena, the mid Magdalena, and the lower Magdalena, which is how a lot of people tend to think about the river um, in other contexts as well. So, uh, you know, in the upper Magdalena, for example, I journeyed into the foothills of the Andes with a renowned Colombian anthropologist named Luis Manuel Salamanca, who brought me to see some of, um, of these kind of ancient megalithic stone sculptures that uh, were left behind by these indigenous cultures for that were kind of proliferated in, in the upper reaches of the Magdalena for many centuries, but then disappeared without a trace. And that was also an example of how in the aftermath of the 2016 peace deal in Colombia, lots of rural regions of the country opened up 
because it was li- they were liberated from FARC control. And so we were able to go to a, a town called Kinchana that kind of two or three years before would have been very tricky for, for somebody like me, an American, even somebody like Luis, um, who's a Colombian, to go to without having to kind of watch their back. Mm-hmm. Um, also along kind of the upper reaches of the river, I met a, an old man who, who builds wooden canoes by the riverbank, and, and that was really special. In the mid-Magdalena, there's kind of a lot that happens, but um, you know, one of my favorite stories is that of the Hotel Pipaton, um, it's this kind of one of Colombia's grandest hotels historically. It was built during the heyday of the Magdalena when steamboats used to go up and down um, the river to transport people from the coast to the capital. Um, but I happened to stumble upon it. Like it was not a planned encounter, but it was closing the day after I got to the city, Barranca Bermeja. And so I spoke with the caretaker of that hotel and he kind of walked me through its demise and what it says about the river and how the river is so important for the economy of the country. Um, that was great in the mid Magdalena in the lower Magdalena, I would say there's no place like Mompos. It's this kind of, uh, river town that's been forgotten by the river itself because the river has shifted course away from it. So it's really hard to get boats that bring passengers past this very, I guess you could say Marquesian town in the sense that Macondo almost feels like it's a version of Mompos where an elderly filigree jeweler sits for 77 years on his front stoop and crafts little silver and gold uh, filigree fishes. Um, there also I found traces of my own family's history, right? We're Arab Jews who, uh, well, my, my ancestors are Arab Jews who migrated from Damascus to Argentina, but so many other Syrians, Jews, Christians, Muslims alike, ended up in Venezuela, in Colombia, in Panama, in Mexico. And in Colombia, a lot of them are in Mopos. So I kind of was able to uh, immerse myself in, in that community there as well, which obviously I found very many parallels to my own, my own family, which was very meaningful. Absolutely. I hope that was what you were looking for. Yeah, in the no, sense that's, of that's fantastic. I, you know, reading that, um, with the part about the hotel and that, that caretaker talks about how he's gathered as much of the history of the hotel as he can. And I thought, oh, somewhere a historian is going to read this and get very excited about this, yes. this trove. Um, yeah. Still today, I have these little like pen drives that I ran out to buy in Barranca Bermeja, like these cheap, I, they must have been like three or $4 pen drives, um, so that I could bring home with me so many of this man's documents that he had in photos of that hotel. And he was from Queens. That was the other crazy <laughs> thing. Is like, I'm sitting there talking to him in Spanish, as with most of these uh, you know, meetings with people along the river. And maybe a quarter of the way through, He's like, hey, so like, where are you from? And I was like, I'm from New York. He's like, no way, switches to English immediately. He's like, I lived in Queens for like 30 years. I was like, what? Why have we been speaking in Spanish this whole time? We have so much in common. We could talk about Queens and New York City, and this is just wonderful. So you can find, um, you know, you can find ways to connect with people in the unlikeliest of places. I guess that was a lesson in that. Sure, absolutely. I'm curious. I mean, so there are some people like that who you met sort of serendipitously as you went. And then there are others that we get the sense that you were able to have some sort of connection to a friend of a friend of a friend or that sort of thing. Could you talk a little bit more about how how you found the people that you talked to in this book? Yeah, it was definitely a mix of careful planning and then serendipitous encounters. <laughs> I think that given the complicated security situation on the ground, uh, while I was there and also the kind of history of it and the 
perceptions around it, which I go into a lot in the book, um, I wanted to make sure that I was establishing a kind of line of trust along the river, people who I knew, or at least people who knew people who I knew, who I would be able to trust to take me in. And um, I spent so much time with with families and like you said, friends of friends of friends. A lot of that was kind of uh, organized ahead of time in the sense that I would show up somewhere and then somebody would say, oh, you know, five towns down the river, you should stay with my friend X. And those were always the best kind of situations because I could come with an invitation from somebody else and it would immediately start a conversation. But in other cases, I would show up and not know anybody and I'd have to figure out what to do. Um, in Barranca Bermeja, that hotel example, I had booked a hotel. I had not even thought to spend time in Barranca Bermeja, which is like kind of an, a gritty oil town. It was just my kind of point of transport to get in a, a boat, a little passenger chalupa, they were called, to go down the river. Um, but when I pulled up in the taxi to the hotel that I had arranged to stay in, the guy kind of shook his head, the taxi driver. He said, wow, you know, if only you could have stayed in the Hotel Pipaton, it's closing tomorrow. And of course, then a light goes on in my head. And I said, what? The Hotel Pipaton is closing tomorrow. I've not heard of the Hotel Pipaton. I need to go. <laughs> and so then I spent the next entire day in the Hotel Pipaton, this like grand um, hotel of the Magdalena. That's fantastic. I, you mentioned the Chalupa and I wanted to talk a little bit more because so, so much of this book really uh, has transportation at its heart. Um, both sort of how transportation infrastructure has really uh, impacted the region and sort of changed um, economic and even political circumstances, but then also how you uh, have to employ sort of a very, very wide range of transportation on your journey. Um, some of which is rather harrowing. Could you describe some of those? Maybe some, what were the most interesting experiences you had sort of just trying to make your way down the river? Certainly. So most people, when they think that I traveled down a river, they think that I traveled by boat the entire way. But the truth about the Magdalena and one of the reasons why it's super interesting right now is because it's no longer navigable by most passenger boats. So I made my way mostly by land, which was actually a blessing because it allowed me to to pass through the towns along the banks of the river and speak with the people who live there. So um, I am somebody who loves different kinds of transportation. So mm -hmm. I'm glad that you pointed that out because um, I'm the kind of person who, you know, just last month I took a train from New York to San Francisco uh, for a story. And like, I'm just kind of fascinated by taking the slow way or the long way there. In Colombia, that's not really an option. You kind of just, everything is the long way there, especially mm -hmm. when it's by land. And so um, I ended up doing this on, you know, hanging on the back of a shared pickup truck to go to a, a mountain village or in a wooden canoe or my favorite, this thing called moto balinera. The moto balinera is like this weird contraption where basically they build this wooden platform with rail, like railroad wheels. So like for railroad tracks. They put the platform on railroad tracks. Some cases, the railroad tracks are abandoned. In other cases, the train could come at any time and you have to be ready to jump. And, um, and they power it with the back wheel of a motorcycle. So like imagine the motorcycles like put onto the plat to this like rail cart. The front wheel is like taken off of the motorcycle. And so like the frame is on the rail cart. And then they use the revving of the engine to spin the back wheel of the motorcycle, which rides along the rail of the railroad and pushes this cart. Why they didn't just, 
you know, kind of carve a path alongside the railroad track? Don't ask me. I don't know. <laughs> but it ended up being this kind of incredible adventure and a way to get to these towns where that's like one of the primary ways you get there. Um, and it was it was very, very cool. So, you know, those were kind of bonuses. But as you say, it also kind of speaks to the state of infrastructure in, in a country that's still very much in development. And as, you know, as the country has kind of opened up a little bit more since the peace agreement and the ceasefire two years before it, it has also started many complex questions about infrastructure and development and what that means for biodiversity and landscapes in the rural parts of the country. So there's lots of complex questions uh, associated with that. Sure. I know that, um, I mean, you talk a little bit in the introduction and it's clear just throughout the book that one of the things you're most interested in is really how people interact with nature and with their environment and how that is that is not a separate thing. You know, that's sort of wrapped up in culture and politics and um, the economy and, and everything. And, and nature, of course, is also very present in this book, sometimes in surprising ways. What do you think, I mean, why, why is this focus important for you? The focus of people in nature. Mm-hmm. I think that across my work, I, I write a lot about people and, and the natural world and how the two are and should be more intertwined because we live on an earth that is not made just for us. Um, and I think that in a country as biodiverse as Colombia, it's the second most biodiverse country in the world. It's home to a kaleidoscope of amazing species and landscapes and ecosystems. I think that it's impossible to ignore when you have people living in deserts and people living in wetlands, people living in mountains and people living in forests and people living in places where there used to be forests, you know, what does it mean for a country to move forward while also working to protect those places that are still very much there and haven't been completely wiped out? Cause I think it's, it's a real challenging question. And in Colombia, there's certain examples of how that is really fraught with, with problems. One example is that of social leaders in the country. Social leaders is kind of this broad term in Colombia used to describe uh, community activists, even scientists, teachers, basically anybody who works to preserve like social, cultural, environmental heritage in their community. Um, uh, and they are being kind of massacred and killed uh, systematically in, in Colombia. More than 1,200 social leaders have been murdered since the peace deal. And that's because in the the opening of the land that was kind of once uh, closed down by the FARC guerrillas, um, it, it means that, again, there's kind of more ability to access that land. And that means that fights have erupted over who gets to control it. And the people who advocate, ad, advocate for its preservation um, oftentimes anger powerful interests that ends up getting them killed. Mm-hmm. And so there's a pretty tragic example in, in my book where that archaeologist anthropologist that I mentioned Luis Manuel Salamanca was murdered a year after I met him and many people believe it's because he was a kind of uh, ardent environmental defender mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's heartbreaking um, I, I was I was struck also in this book that some of the efforts at conservation, that you talk about are really community-based. You know, they're very, they seem to be very grassroots and not necessarily driven by outside organizations or um, even places with lots of funding. I'm thinking especially here of um, turtles and even the, there's a great line about howler monkeys being able to cross. Um, 
did you get a sense of what sort of motivates those efforts or what keeps them going? I think that there are certain people who have taken upon themselves the responsibility to bring their communities uh, or to bring their communities around the conservation of species in their area. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of the turtles, it's really interesting, right? Because on the one hand, it's a super special project that's happening. On the other hand, they are regular people. They're not scientists necessarily, and they have no guidance. And so what does that mean for, you know, when, when people are working with endangered, in this case, extremely endangered species, and what kind of support do they need to make sure that they're doing the right job, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are interesting questions. And I know I think motivating it are these leaders, these specific people who are very passionate about the environment and conserving nature, and they kind of rally the troops, so to speak. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting, you asked kind of an interesting question, and, and I'm curious to know if you have thought more about it, because it's something that I think a lot about too, where you mentioned sort of just the concern that even traveling there to report and to learn does environmental harm um, and sort of the risk involved in that. And, and I'm wondering how you think about that. Why is it important to travel there regardless? Is there value in um, sort of the sense, I mean, with the turtles, for example, there's a sense that tourists can help spread the word about these concerns. How do you sort of balance those, those issues? I'm still trying to figure it out, to be completely <laughs> honest with you. I think we all are trying to figure it out, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, how to justify traveling anywhere now where when you get on an airplane, it's just so harmful. Um, I I don't have a good answer for it. And I don't know Mm -hmm. if people have a very good answer for it in generally, but I do like to, to try at least anytime I do get on an airplane to make sure that something comes out of it. That in my case, I I'm lucky to have this platform where I'm able to write and tell stories and make people aware of things. And so if there could be some kind of net good that happens from it, I consider that a win but I also am trying to limit the amount of time I spend on airplanes. Sure. Okay. So to switch gears just a little bit, um, it's, it's clear that you're really following sort of <laughs> following in the footsteps, but also on your own path, but of um, previous writers in this region, could you talk a little bit about those influences, sort of how you came to them and how, how they shaped the way you thought and wrote about this book? Certainly. So I think that there are writers just generally kind of in the genre who I really admire. And then there are people who don't necessarily write nonfiction even, but who have a huge mark on this book. I mean, people in the genre who I admire, a lot of them actually were my teachers at Princeton, (laughs) Pico Iyer, John McPhee. These are just kind of experts in telling supremely human stories and introducing us to places we didn't know much about, lives we didn't know much about before. Um, And then in terms of writers who just have an immense impact on this book, I don't think that I could go without mentioning Garcia Marquez because, you know, he, the Magdalena was the river of his life, of his childhood. Um, it pervades so much of his work, love in the time of cholera. It could be argued, I guess, that the Magdalena is even a character in that book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Garcia Marquez, you know, he told stories, of fictional, magical realism. A lot of the people who I met along the Magdalena uh, kind of, claimed uh, jokingly that they were the true stories of their lives because so much of it is rooted in fact with just kind of tinges of magic that Garcia Marquez is able to add. So that he's obviously a very special influence. Absolutely. It was struck too that you were, um, you read a lot of sort of uh, much older travel writing about this region. Um, 
and and in history, there's sometimes this interesting phenomenon that we talk about, especially in history of science, where uh, people read, especially in the 19th century, they would read other travel reports, and then they would sort of go expecting to see those things. Did you sort of have to um, set aside the things that you'd read about the region ahead of time? Or did you find that there was like a strong contrast or, or how did that impact your experience? I think that with travel writing, it's interesting because, well, this is going to be a cliche <laughs> time, but you know, the title of this book, Every Day the River Changes, right? Comes from this idea that you never step in the same river twice, <laughs> but um, everybody's diff- everybody's experiences are unique. I think that me traveling down the river, me being the person who I am and traveling down this river in the moment that I traveled, down the river is going to be vastly different than anybody who's traveled down the river before me, both because of who they are and when they did it. So I think that that's one of the beauties of place-based writing and travel writing is that depending on the moment and depending on the writer, you see the world through their eyes in a very particular moment in time. Mm -hmm. And again, that's what I mean when I say that this is very much one person's journey down a river. Um, I hope that people are seeing a little bit of, uh, of what I saw through my, through my eyes. Um, and so I don't know if it's necessarily putting aside those writers um, who I read, like Paul Theroux in the old Patagonian Express takes a train kind of alongside, the, actually most likely along the same tracks where I then rode that motorcycle <laughs> rail cart. He was on an actual train. Um, so that was interesting to think about. And, but I think generally it just is inspiration for um, what could happen what could go wrong and what can go right on a, on an adventure like this. Sure. Absolutely. Well, what surprised you most while you were, while you were researching for this book? On the ground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or elsewhere. <laughs> well, no, I think that, I think that, um, I think that the idea that you could knock on somebody's door and have them not only open it, but then, like welcome you in and share their story with a complete stranger, pretty much like maybe one person they knew kind of was like, Hey, I met this guy. Like he seems okay. You should talk to him. <laughs> I think that's like, that's really surprising and crazy. And I don't think that that happens or that's possible to happen in many parts of the world. In fact, I don't think that it could happen in my town. I don't think that it could happen in a lot of towns in America uh, that somebody will knock on your door and start asking you questions and you'll actually answer. I think that the door would have been slammed in my face if I walked around, you know, my hometown and tried to, to ask these sorts of questions and, and spend time with people in the way I did there. And so the kind of opening of arms and willingness to share and go deep on not only kind of what everyday life was like, but also the challenges that people face in a very honest way was surprisingly good, mm-hmm. especially in a country that has, such negative misperceptions in the United States. Yeah. So I think you go in with this kind of preconceived notion of what could happen or what could go wrong. But in my case, at least, um, those were completely turned on their head. And I hope that that's something people, t- a big thing that people take away from this book. Sure. Yeah, I was really interested. I mean, you you mentioned a few times throughout the book moments where you sort of feel fear or concern, um, or even <laughs> Princeton expresses concern about your plans. Um, because of both perception, but the very real violent past. Um, And then it seems largely like you, you don't really sort of experience um, any of that on the ground. Was that, 
Is that true? Or, or is that just, it wasn't an important part of your story? How did it you? Is, it is very true. But also I think you have to qualify that with just saying that like I was a college student when I did this and I went sure. out of my way to make sure that I'm, I, nothing bad would happen. <laughs> sure. um, right. But yeah, no, I mean like there was some, there were some moments of apprehension and there were certain steps that I took like traveling with other people. Like I was never alone along this. Well, I traveled alone all the time, but mm-hmm. I was never, I was never by myself. I was always received by people. Sure. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like things like that made it to be that when, when I was with people who knew the, the places where I was going, it made it a whole lot safer. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. One of the final sites that um, we see in the book kind of unexpectedly is this image of a cell phone tower uh, as you are sort of reaching the the mouth of the river. And, and you also mentioned a few times sort of the presence of smartphones, especially how many more have proliferated since you were first there in 2016. And I'm curious, um, in the introduction, you talk about how the remarkable thing about that is that you're able to stay in touch with people that you met while you were there. Could you talk a little bit about how um, or if that affected your reporting and how you thought about the writing after you returned? Yeah, I think that the image of the cell phone tower was very deliberate. Um, well, first of all, it was there, but to, to kind of make sure that that was known to people that it was there was deliberate because it's in a way a symbol of, um, of Colombia moving into this new phase of trying to develop while at the same time grappling with all of its kind of demons of the past. Um, but yeah, I mean, just being able to keep in touch with people across spans of space and time is something that I think is relatively new to for journalism and travel writing i mean like in the past i would imagine you would have somebody would have done this even in like 2010 it would have been very hard you know just 10 years ago to keep in touch after the fact with the people you met especially in like the most remote places but for me even in the most remote places i've been able to maintain relationships with people and you know after the fact i've learned things some of which appear in the book and some of which don't i mean the, the obviously example of the anthropologist who was murdered, that was really jarring and tragic and terrible. And I learned that about a year after I met him. Um, other tragedies occurred that don't appear in this book that are pretty private for people. And then there's other amazing things that have happened. Like I've just, <laughs> through being friends like on Facebook, learned people have gotten married and gotten mm-hmm. degrees and um, gotten jobs and things like that. And so it's both very heartening and disheartening just like it is with anybody else. I don't think that it's necessarily a difference that I met them in that context. I think that mm-hmm. when you keep in touch with anybody across um, a long, longish period of time, you'll see the ups and downs of life play out. Sure. Did it affect, um, I mean, you talked when we were first talking about sort of this new generation of travel writing in the sense that breaking down that idea of othering and instead um sort of presenting people in their full selves. Do you do you feel like that sort of connection plays a role in fighting against the sense of othering, you know, like being able to maintain that connection and not just sort of going somewhere and sort of extractively taking stories and then returning um, with staying connected? 100%. That... 100% because you're, I mean, in my case, at least, I don't know how other people do it, but in my <laughs> case, I really set out to build relationships with people and to make connections with people. I was not going just to meet people, take their stories and run. Like, I don't like that at all. I think that centering them and having them be kind of principal characters in their own story. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of just the messenger was the goal. Sure. But also I made friends along this river. That's like, I care about 
you know, everybody in this book, <laughs> Bill, today. Um, and I feel an emotional attachment to a lot of them. And so that's something that happens when you spend time in people's homes and spend many days with, I don't know, with people who you come to care about. Absolutely. I noticed that, you know, throughout the book, there are a few hints that they all sort of knew that this was your plan going in to write um, about the experience and, and to write it as a book, because I think there are some mentions of, you know, be sure to get this photo in your book or uh, that sort of thing. How did they feel? I mean, was there sort of a enthusiasm about uh, having their stories told? Yeah. And I mean, everybody knew that I was there to record the people's stories they, mm -hmm. there was, you know, that was definitely the goal from the outset, whether it was for sure. a thesis or for a book or for articles or whatever. Um, people knew about that. The people who didn't want to share didn't end up in the book. And a lot of people in the book's names are changed. The people who aren't public figures, um, a lot of their names are altered or changed entirely just to protect people's privacy too. Um, sure. so that's definitely a way that I went about mitigating that. So I'm curious, I mean, so much of this book is both about the history and the sort of present moment and um, how those things have changed and, and influenced each other. Did you have a takeaway in writing this book about the future of the Magdalena? The future of the river itself is definitely in question. Now, even since the book went to, to be printed, like when I couldn't change it anymore, <laughs> there have been confirmed plans to start dredging it, which is something I allude to in the book that people mm -hmm. were talking about that, but it seems like it's actually going to start now. Um, so that's something that's definitely going to change the river. I've heard about um, certain tour companies who are trying to create like luxury cruises down the Magdalena to recreate kind of what used to happen in the, in the twenties, thirties and forties. Mm. And then at the same time, there's all these questions about the ecosystems along the river and what's going to happen to those places again, as deforestation continues or rises and all sorts of other environmental problems plague the country. So I think there's a big question mark on it all. Sure. How about the future of the people? In every case, it's different. I don't think that I could give one answer <laughs> sure. that kind of covers all of them. But, um, you know, for some people, the future is bright. And for other people, unfortunately, the future does not look very bright. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I, I couldn't help but wonder as I was reading this just timing wise, um, how, how have they been affected by COVID? Yeah. Um, well, on the whole, Latin America and Colombia, it's no exception, um, have not been faring very well. In Colombia, just a few months ago in May, there were kind of widespread protests that were then met with violence by the government and the police um, over kind of rising inequality and poverty during the pandemic and the implementation of the peace accords and things like that, um, that show that people are, are suffering, I think, um, everywhere, especially in Latin America and in Colombia. And I think that, you know, I have not heard of any specific people in my book getting COVID or dying of it, thankfully. Um, but so that's, that's good. But I think that, in, you know, in general, it's just been a really hard time. Okay. Um, this has been fascinating and I just, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed reading this book and getting to chat with you about it. We've taken up a lot of your time though. So before we go, I'm, I'm hoping, can you just tell us uh, maybe what you're working on these days or if you have something coming up that you'd like to promote? Yes. So around the release of the book, there are going to be many stories in different places that I hope people read, um, both excerpts and kind of expanded reported out 
features surrounding some of the people and the places in the book. Um, we also have a whole slate of events, which is super exciting, both in person and virtual to launch this book. So if people are in the Princeton area on November 30th, we'll be at Labyrinth Books. If people are in, um, uh, you know, online anywhere and they want to <laughs> watch some virtual events, we have some stuff coming up in, in early December. And I would encourage everybody who's listening and would like to follow me on Instagram, Jordan Salama 19, where I share lots of photos from this trip and uh, oh, captions that, that describe uh, the people in the pictures and kind of give more color from the book. And also you can uh, get information there about events and other ways to, to connect with me if you're interested in learning more. So I really appreciate it. Fantastic. Um, I will check that out because I'm eager to, <laughs> eager to see images. This has been a great conversation. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you and I just want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you again so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Great. And, and thanks to you listeners for joining us on new books in environmental studies. Take care of yourselves.